All right. Well, good morning, Fellowship Franklin. How's everyone doing this morning? All right. Very good. Good to see you. Um, like Carl, I need to take a minute to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Mike, and I'm one of your elders here at Fellowship Bible. And it is a joy to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning. Um, as Eric made mention last week, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs for a few weeks here at Fellowship. And uh, the directive that all of the speakers that have been invited to bring some content on Sunday morning, we've all been given this, a similar task. And that is, uh, we've been given freedom to, to, like they said, share a proverb that's impacted you. Uh, take something out of the book of Proverbs that's really spoken to you or that's really challenged you or convicted you. Um, and so that's what I hope to do this morning. Um, but before we launch into Proverbs, um, I thought I'd just uh, quickly address a couple of things pertaining to how we need to engage and address the book of Proverbs um, as a style of literature. First things first, what is a proverb? I thought I would Google this uh, a week ago as I was getting ready for the sermon, just to make sure I had my terms uh, precisely defined. So according to Google, this is what I learned. A proverb is a short, pithy saying that conveys a general truth or piece of advice. A short, pithy saying that conveys a general truth or piece of advice. Now, that definition may sit well for you. I was a little bit at unrest with it because I must have missed the day in English where they taught on what the word pithy means. So I Googled pithy. Here's what pithy means according to Google. Containing much pith. <laughs> Not helpful. So I Googled pith, and I got to where I was looking for. According to Google, pith means concise and forceful. So here we go. Now I felt like I had something I could work with. A proverb is a concise and forceful short saying that conveys a general truth or piece of advice. Think of proverbs as being kind of punchy statements that get right to the point, that don't mince words, and convey some general truth about the world that we live in. Now, everyone in the room, I'm going to guess, maybe not everyone, but I'm going to guess most people in the room actually have some proverbs memorized. And I'm going to test this theory in just a second. I'm going to start a phrase and I want to see if you guys have the rest of this memorized. And by the way, this is not a proverb out of our Bible. This is kind of a cultural or a popular proverb. So let me, let me try this on for size. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Good. All right, let's try another one. Some of you youngsters can probably help me with this one. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Very good. Now, one quick observation about Proverbs. They teach a general truth. I'm uh, someone that likes to get up early. I also like to go to bed early. But I don't think everyone that observes those disciplines is necessarily healthy, wealthy, and wise. We could probably find an exception. I also eat an apple almost every day, but that doesn't mean that I never have to go to the doctor, right? So we can agree that Proverbs teaches general truths, which means that they're more like probabilities than promises. Um, but these are, these are the types of things we find in the book of Proverbs. One of the things that's super fun about them is that they are short, right? They are concise, um, and they're easy to retain. Uh, those two Proverbs that we just uh, recited, I'm going to guess it's been years since you've heard those words spoken, and yet you could, you could pick it out of your brain just like that. It's easier, of course, when they're set to rhyme or to meter. It makes it easier to remember. Um, but their, the, their length makes them easy to retain. They read a little bit like sound bites, don't they? 
It also kind of feels like Twitter almost stole their concept from Proverbs. Get your message across in 140 characters or less. All right, what is the purpose of the book of Proverbs? Uh, I want us to look at what Proverbs says about itself in terms of why the book exists. Um, So if you have a Bible, if you could turn with me to Proverbs chapter one, we're gonna look at verses one through three. If you have a handheld device like a phone or a tablet, go ahead and go there. And if you are of that class of people that came to church ill-equipped for success today, we're gonna put the verses on the screen. All right, Proverbs one, verses one through three, it says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Now, if you read through the rest of Proverbs chapter one, and I would argue also through Proverbs chapter two, It's more of a developed introduction to the genre or to the book of Proverbs. But what do we know about the book in just these first three verses? Because this is all we're really gonna take time to look at today. Proverbs says the purpose of the book is found right there in front of you. It is to know wisdom, to receive instruction in wise dealings. Now the word choice here is significant. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Proverbs so you can be really smart. How many of you in this room know really, really smart people that do incredibly stupid things? Can I see your hand for a second? Okay, so can we agree that there's a difference between intelligence, right, knowledge, and wisdom? There's a difference. Smart people get good grades. Wise people live good lives. There's a difference. The goal of Proverbs is to figure out how do we apply this book? The essence of Proverbs is about applying God's truth to your life so that you live well. Proverbs is not about memorizing facts, memorizing information. It's about how do we understand this book and apply it to our life in a way that allows us to live in accordance with its teaching. If you wanna think of a summary statement of Proverbs, it's this. Proverbs is a book that exists to teach us wisdom so that we have the skill to live life biblically. Proverbs exist to teach us wisdom so we have the skill to live our lives biblically. Now, there's 31 chapters, as you know, and so many people say, you know, proverb a day. Read a, read a, read a proverb every single day. And if, you're, if you digest the proverbs with some repetition, if you consume it at a reasonable pace, what you find is that there's some themes that pop up with some consistency. Uh, Three or four or five different ideas kind of keep coming back as you read the Proverbs. Uh, And to some people, this is a frustration. They'll be reading it and say, hey, didn't he like just cover this in the last chapter? Why, Why are we covering this ground again? But you need to know that when you're consuming literature, if an author is revisiting an idea, if he's revisiting a point again and again and again, he's trying to drive home a message. He's saying this is important and you better listen. Now, one of these repetitive themes that I find surfaces quite often in the Proverbs is a teaching related to the biblical use of money. And so the the basic idea that I wanted to address this morning, the Proverbs I wanted to look at in the time slot I was given, was I wanted to see what this book has to say about the biblical use of money. Now, I choose this path for a couple of reasons. 
Number one, I found in my career, for whatever reason, uh, working in the area of finance and money, it seems to just, I seem to be naturally wired for it. It comes very easy to me. I feel like I speak its language. This would have totally baffled my parents, by the way. Um, I was that kid in school who did great in gym class, but I was lousy at literally every other subject in school. And I went to university and got a bachelor's degree in physical education, in part because it was the only university major that allowed me to fully sidestep university level math, right? So I was never good at math, ever. And when I went uh, into the workforce, when I, when, I, when I went into business and I became an entrepreneur, I realized I'd have to reconcile myself with math if I was ever gonna figure out things like cost and profitability and balance sheet and stuff like that. So I got acquainted with math almost by necessity and I discovered when I got into it, it became very natural to me. And so I'm intrigued by the, the teaching that we find in Proverbs uh, that teach us about the responsible use of our resources. So I want to have us go to Proverbs, and I want us, I'm going to take you through four different uh, Proverbs that are going to teach us on the wise biblical use of our resources. So can you fast forward in your Bible, please? So we're going to go start uh, at Proverbs chapter 14. And I would strongly encourage you, if you happen to have a paper Bible and it's accompanied by a pen or a highlighter, I would love it if you'd underline or highlight the verses we're looking at, just to give you an, an opportunity to come back to some of the stuff we're revisiting. I think on those uh, handheld devices, you can also use like a highlighting function as well. All right, Proverbs 14. We're gonna look at verse 31. It says this, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Capital H, honors his maker. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but underline the second part, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Come back a few chapters in Proverbs. Next one we're gonna look at is in Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25. It says this, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. Doesn't seem to make mathematical sense, does it? One gives freely and grows all the richer. The one who waters will himself be watered. Interesting. Skip back even further in Proverbs to chapter three. We're gonna look at Proverbs 3, verses nine to 10 next. And it says this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You know what struck me in this one? Honor the Lord with your wealth. I think of your wealth as being your accumulation, that which you've built up and have retained over time. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. I think of that as your income, whatever comes from your job or your business. Honor the Lord with your uh, accumulation and honor the Lord with your new earnings. And when you do that, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Let's look at one more. Uh, skip ahead to Proverbs 19. We're gonna look at Proverbs 19, verse 17. This one's interesting. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. He who, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him 
for his deed. Now, some of you in the room might be going, Mike, I feel like you've baited and switched me this morning. I thought you were gonna teach us about the wise use of money. And it seems like you're merely bent on extending our generosity series yet one more week. Well, guys, I'll tell you that as we look at the Proverbs, when God, speaking through Solomon, chose to communicate to us what skillful, what God-honoring, looks, uh, God-honoring living looks like as it pertains to money, what does he tell us? He says that we will live much better lives and we will receive an abundance of his blessing if we live with an open hand towards our resources. Becoming financially wise and living skillfully according to this book, it starts here. It starts with being open-handed towards those in need and towards uh, the Lord's work directly. Now, I'm not sure what your story is, but I'll share just a little bit of mine. I've been able to experience both sides of the ledger on this one. I've had times in my life where we have experienced uh, great abundance. Uh, The Lord has blessed us at times uh, with a lot materially, and we've been able to give very generously uh, to the the church and to those who are in need. Uh, We've been able to have a first-person experience with what some people call the giver's gain. We've been able to really taste that it is truly more blessed to give than it is to receive. And it's been fun sometimes sitting across the table in a Starbucks after discovering a need of a family that my wife or I would pass a check across to the other side of the table. We would normally read Acts 2.45 when we do this and say, hey, listen, this is how the church works. We, you know, we, we take care of each other. And at times we'll see eyes watering on the other side of the table. I'm like, what, what's up? Like, I've been praying to the Lord exactly for him to provide the amount that is on your check. And you get goosebumps going, are you serious? We got to be a part of an answered prayer. But I've also been on the receiving side of this. I remember being on my knees in 2008 and 2009 during what was the Great Recession. I was running a business during that time, and that was the first time I ever experienced fear as an entrepreneur. And I remember when the phones just stopped ringing, transactions just stopped happening, and I'm going, Lord, I don't know how we're gonna make it through this. And I prayed like the Dickens that the Lord would somehow make provision happen for us because I didn't see a way for me to be able to meet the needs of my family during that time. And I saw supernatural answers to prayer, very specific ways that the Lord chose to provide when I didn't make my need known to anybody except to him. And I saw doors opening up for provision that was just incredible memories and just an incredible experience. Both the times of abundance and the times of scarcity, both of those guys have served to draw me closer to the Lord um, when I've had to walk that road. Now, last week when Eric taught, um, he highlighted some of the results of our generosity series. And as you know, uh, from our celebration up at the Brentwood campus a couple Sundays ago, we brought a need to you. And we said, hey, we've got a really big starter gift here um, to help us knock down our mortgage of about 1.6 million. We're gonna take this gift plus some of our budget uh, uh, underage that we have, and we've got 800,000 that we can throw towards our $1.6 million mortgage. And we came to you and said, would you help us to knock this out? Would you help us to get our mortgage to the finish line? And we made that need known, and you did that. And we said, by the way, if we go beyond what we need, we're gonna now give to El Shaddai, that church that was destroyed in the incredible flood of May 2010. Whatever comes in over our needs, we're gonna help these guys to get home. They need about $800,000 to get home. Well, not only did your giving help us to knock out our mortgage, your giving completely funded the reconstruction of El Shaddai. But you know what? 
we have a million dollars roughly more. And we've had to form a task force at Fellowship Bible led by Susan Hicks, our global director, to help us to figure out how to properly and most biblically steward the resources that have been put into our hand so we know how to, how to put the work into God's service and glorify him through your generosity. I say all that to let you guys know that I know that many of you in the room get this. Many of you are generous givers. Many of you are living biblically with your finances and you don't even need to hear this sermon this morning. I get that many of you passed on that new car so that you could help El Shaddai go home. Well done. But I'm gonna guess that there's a few people in the room and I don't know who you are, but I'm gonna guess that there's a few people in the room that are still somewhat on the fence with this generosity stuff. You're not fully sure if you can trust what God says when he tells you that you'll live better on 90% than you ever will on 100. And there could be a few reasons why you're not trusting there. Maybe you grew up in a home where there was always uh, very, very little to go around. And you grew up in a time or in a house where you had to save every single penny, had to spare every single expense because otherwise the electricity was gonna get turned off. And that thought process has carried forward with you into your adulthood. You can't shake it off. It's still part of how you think. That might be part of the reason why you struggle to open up your hand. Some of you might be in a marriage where between husband and wife, uh, you're not equally yoked. You're not seeing the world the same way in terms of what the right amount of your income is to give away to help the poor and the needy and to give to the Lord. And you might just be on different pages and you, and you haven't quite settled on what the right amount is to give. That might be why you're not 100% sure of this generosity stuff. Well, if you're, if you're kind of on the fence and you're not fully bought into what I'm trying to demonstrate this morning through Proverbs, and you're not sure you can trust the Lord to bless you on 90% as opposed to the 100%, can I ask your permission to step outside of Proverbs? And I wanna drive this point home. I'm gonna ask you to uh, skip ahead to the book of Malachi. This is the last book in your Old Testament, just before Matthew. Can you go ahead and skip forward there with me? And I wanna try to drive this point home. And I wanna look at a verse that when I first found this, I'm not sure how many years ago it was that I found this, but I gotta tell you that when I discovered this teaching and when I understood what it meant, I just about fell out of my chair. And I'm gonna contradict something right now that I said earlier today. I mentioned to you earlier this morning that Proverbs teach generalities. They teach uh, basic truths, they don't teach promises. Well, I'm gonna argue that the, what we find in Proverbs pertaining to God's commitment to bless you, to honor you, to have you blessed abundantly, I don't think that's a general truth. I think that's actually a promise of God, i.e., I think it's infallible. And let me tell you why. When you open your Bible to Malachi chapter three, what you find, I'll give you some context. God is calling the Israelites to account. He's calling them onto the carpet and he's having a conflict with them because they have chosen to not live biblically with their giving. They're not fully trusting the Lord with their tithing. And the Lord is initiating a bit of a conflict with him. He's saying, listen, you have been not bringing the full tithe into my storehouse. God's basically saying, you've been robbing me. And then he tells them, your whole nation is living under a curse because you have not brought the full tithe into my storehouse. And then we see Malachi 3, chapter 10. Let's read this together. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing 
that there will not be room enough to store it. Can I ask you to underline, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. There's two things you need to understand about this verse. Number one, these are red letter words. Now, we only see red letter words in your Bible in the New Testament when it's Jesus speaking, but this is God in the Old Testament speaking in the first person. These are red letter words, God giving a promise, God speaking with his own voice. Here's what's incredible in Malachi 3. There is one spot in your entire Bible, one, where God says, go ahead and put me to the test. And it's right here. God says, put me to the test in your giving and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. He promises that you will not regret being generous and open-handed with your financial resources. Guys, I'm not preaching some prosperity gospel to you this morning. I'm not giving you some formulas so that you can manipulate God into improving your own financial situation. That's not where I'm at at all. What I am telling you is that skillful living, biblical living, being wise with your resources, it starts here. It starts with giving to the Lord's work and to those in need. And the Bible is crystal clear. When you do that and you treat that as first, you treat that as primary, that God promises to meet your needs and so much more. Now, there's a, an interesting tradition that the Jews have that I wanna try to demonstrate for you this morning. As you know, the Jews recognize the Sabbath with a whole lot of um, commitment, passion, zeal. And in Israel, the Sabbath starts on Friday night sundown. Sun goes down and it, it begins their period of intentional rest. And they, their work week ceases. They go into a very uh, slow gear time of just family and relaxing and enjoying being with the Lord. And from Friday at sundown for the next 24 hours, the Sabbath exists. And then Saturday at sundown, Sabbath draws to a close. And when Sabbath draws to a close on Saturday night, the Jews engage in a ceremony called the Havdalah, Havdalah. And in the Havdalah prayer, what happens is that the head of the household assembles the family around the table and he grabs a bottle of wine and he fills a glass of wine in front of him before his family. And the filling of the cup is symbolic of the family's intent to produce during the week ahead. This is sort of forward facing and now we're getting ready for the work week and we're gonna work next week and our efforts are gonna produce fruit sufficient to meet our family's household needs. But do you know in the Havdalah prayer, the filling of the cup doesn't stop here. The head of the household intentionally overfills the cup to, to excess, demonstrating the intent to work not just for the benefit of the family, but intentionally to produce more for the benefit of others. In other words, I need to work as the head of my household. I need to work to be the provider for my family so that I am producing in a way that allows me to meet my family's needs first, but I don't stop there. I intentionally continue producing so that I can have a surplus to be a benefit for others, a blessing for others that we, that we will give away. My efforts don't stop at my full glass. My efforts stop when I've overflowed my glass and I now have some to give to others. I thought that was a really cool 
symbolic uh, depiction of what the Bible's teaching us about our, our money. Now, with our time that remains, I want to share a story, if I could, about an overflowed glass that I've encountered. And I'm going to share a story with you uh, about a good friend of mine in South Sudan, a man named James Bach. He's one of our global partners. Uh, if you've been at church for a while, you may have had the opportunity to hear from James. Uh, when he was 13 years old, his village was attacked in a place called Vietnam in South Sudan. And his village was attacked by some raiders. Uh, James, as a young age, fled into the bush to try to find safety. And what he found when he got there was that hundreds and hundreds of other children also fled into the bush to find safety. Um, he couldn't go back to his village because it had been burned, it had been destroyed. So James and hundreds of other children start walking. And as you'll see from the picture here, they walk and walk and walk and walk and they would ultimately walk more than a thousand miles. That's the distance from Nashville to Denver. They would walk roughly a thousand miles before they would reach safety at a refugee camp in Ethiopia. And when James got to Ethiopia, he would be the recipient of generosity. And this generosity that he received would change his life. James gets to the refugee camp. And he ends up going to the basic equivalent of a church service. And he meets a missionary who tells him about Jesus. And James hears the gospel for the first time. And he becomes a Christian. And after that, he meets another man that's in the refugee camp, a guy named Mark Nickel. And Mark meets James and sees that there's something kind of interesting about this James Bach fella. He's got some leadership qualities to him. There's something kind of distinctive about him. And Mark Nickel reaches into his own pocket and decides to fund the money for James Bach to receive a high school education, something that was not even a possibility for James where he grew up. So James goes to school. And James now has the gospel, and he has an education, two things his people have never received. And something interesting happens. The United Nations forms a program for these lost boys. They discover that there's literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these young children, and there's no place for them to go. So the UN forms a resettlement program, and they come up with uh, an international plan to have these lost boys find new homes all over the world. Some came here to the United States. Some had doors open to Canada, other places in Europe. And James was handed what I call the golden ticket. He was handed a yellow envelope by the United Nations. Here you go. This is your opportunity to start a whole new life in the United States. And many of his friends were taking these envelopes and couldn't wait to go start a new life in America. You know what James did? He took the yellow envelope he looked at it, and he gave it back. He said, my people have never heard the gospel. And he said, my people have never been educated. He said, I've received these two gifts. James is saying, someone has poured into me. And he says, I must take these two gifts, and I must take them home to my people. So James doesn't come to America. He goes home. And you know what happens when he goes home? Not many years after he's there, Fellowship Bible Church discovers James Bach. We, we traveled to his village in Vietnam, and we found that James was planting churches. We found that James was preaching the gospel. He was doing what he could with the resources he had. He was trying to promote education. He had worked with another organization, and he got the first ever primary school uh, built in Vietnam. So education came, and James is doing everything he can with the two gifts he's been given, education and the gospel. 
And when we send our team there, I went there for the first time in 2006, we look at James and say, what do you need? How can we help? And he says, I need two things. He said, I'm worried about the gospel being intermixed with our African traditions. I don't want to water down the gospel. There's a danger here. Can you help us to have solid grounding biblically for our church leaders? We said, done. So we start going back to Vietnam training pastors. And if you think there's a photo here, you'll see of uh, what we call PLTI, Pastor Leadership Training Institute. You can see Lloyd sitting down on the front left there with his ball cap on. This is from one of our many trips back to the region, training church leaders, uh, pastors, evangelists, church leaders, Sunday school teachers, equipping them with biblical training. We started doing this, we've kept doing this, but in addition to this, uh, with James Box Board, we've actually formed a mobile seminary where we can literally bring the equivalent of three years of seminary education into the field with a mobile seminary program to make sure the church leaders are very clearly well-trained and equipped to handle the word of God. But James Box said, in addition to training our church leaders, can you also help us with education? He said, could you help us with a school? They had a primary school, but education stopped at the eighth grade. He said, could you help us with, uh, with a high school? And so we did that. Part of your global giving a number of years ago helped us to form the first ever high school in Vietnam. You'll see on the placard there, it says, thanks to the generosity of Fellowship Bible Church, the school is standing. And so now, children in Vietnam are experiencing a high school education, discovering their potential and their promise and developing what God has given them in a way that's never before been possible. That's the Hope Secondary School in front of you there. But we go further still. One of the things that James's ministry does is we look for people that have, are youngsters that have a whole lot of potential, that have a whole bunch of promise. And I had just an incredible experience. On my very first trip to Vietnam, I met a young man named Angelo. He is 12 years old. I'll put him up on the screen here. That's Angelo on the left. He's got this killer big smile. And Angelo, at 12 years of age, was a youngster who snuck into pastor training. He's an orphan, 12 years of age, and he was bored. There was nothing else going on in the village, but hey, there's a whole bunch of people over there meeting beneath the tree. Let's go check it out. So you'll see Angelo shows up at the pastor trading. He's in the front row holding a Frisbee. And Angelo's enjoying all the fun that's happening with the pastor training. And here's what happened on those several days that we were there training. I was there with a few other people from fellowship and I'd ask a question. I'd be training the pastors and church leaders and I'd ask a question to see who's tracking with me. Does anyone know the answer to this question? And a few hands popped up, not many. And then Angelo's like, oh, 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 oh. Angelo, what's the answer? And he got, he got the answer exactly. Great job. We go a little bit further, another half an hour of teaching. All right, who knows the answer to this question? Angelo's like, oh, 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 oh. Angelo, what's the answer? Got it exactly. It becomes clear very quickly this, that this 12-year-old who wasn't even invited is the smartest guy in the room. What's interesting is that he's an orphan. His parents died when he was very young of very treatable illnesses, but there's no medical care available in Vietnam. So he's an orphan. He looks a little scraggly. In all honesty, you can tell he's a little tattered and torn, but man, there's a light in this kid. God has blessed him with smarts. And so what's intriguing is that we left on that first trip and we said, man, this Angelo kid, he's the future of Vietnam. I wonder what's gonna happen to Angelo. We go back. 
We come back the next year and we find that Angelo is serving. He's teaching kids. He's leading. He's doing great stuff. Come back a year later, see it again. Angelo's teaching. He's leading. He's serving. And our team that goes to Vietnam, we pull our funds together and we said, you know what? We're gonna invest in this kid's high school education. We're gonna do to Angelo what this man named Mark Nickel did to James Bach. We're gonna invest in this guy's future and see what happens. So four of us pool our resources, put our funds together, and we ship Angelo off to Kenya for a high school education. Angelo comes back four years later. Fast forward the clock. I think I got a picture of Angelo after he finished high school. A little older now. And Angelo, when I go back to Vietnam, says, Mr. Mike, I'd like a meeting with you. I said, sure. He says, let's meet tonight by the campfire after dinner. I said, sure. So Angelo sits me down by the fire and he says, Mr. Mike, I feel God is telling me to become a doctor. I'm like, whoa, really? He's like, I feel God is telling me to become a doctor. I'm going, that's an awesome dream, man. I'll pray for you. In my head going, in my head, honestly, I'm going, good luck. Like, I, I don't see this happening. Good luck. I pray that the Lord will open a door for you. I don't know what that is, but we'll, we'll pray. And I was very skeptical. Come back the next year uh, to teach again in Vietnam. Angelo says, Mr. Mike, it's good to see you. And I said, hey, Angelo, how are you? He's like, great. Can I have a meeting with you tonight? I said, sure. And he said, let's meet at the fire. I said, sure. Rinse and repeat. And we sit down by the fire and I say, Angelo, what's on your mind? He says, Mr. Mike, I feel the Lord is telling me to become a doctor. And I say, Angelo, I gotta tell you, I said, you've been given a high school education in Vietnam. This is before the Hope School was built. Angelo, you've been taken from here to here in your education. And you're, being at, you're, you're asking for the Lord to take you here when no one else in the village has even gone to here. I said, I, I can't even justify that decision because so many people haven't been given the help that you've already received. I'll pray that the Lord opens a door, but I know how much this stuff costs. I don't see the way, but I will pray that the Lord opens a door for you. I come back to Vietnam the next year. Mr. Mike, I'd like a meeting. Sit down with Angelo by the campfire. Angelo, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? He says, Mr. Mike, I wanted to let you know that I've decided to not become a doctor. I said, why? He said, because the Lord hasn't opened the door. And I don't know what it was, but something kind of broke me in that moment. I felt a kick because I saw this young guy giving up on his dream. I saw this young guy giving up on what he felt the Lord was calling him to, but I, I don't blame him. I, I didn't see the way for it to happen. He didn't see the way for him to happen. So he said that he's decided to be something else. And I can't remember what it was that he said because I was so taken aback that he had given up on his dream. And so something prompted me, something kicked me in the gut. And I said, well, let's, let's see how much it would cost for you to go to medical school. And so we looked around and, and did, some, did some look. And Angelo, being super smart in high school, got really good grades. But, you know, South Sudan is a different education system. Like, there's just lots of stuff that was obstacles. We threw out some feelers. And you know what we found? We found a university that would accept Angelo, a respected university called Kenya Methodist University. Angelo was enrolled in medical school. Look at his quote when I asked him how it felt. He says, it had been a dream of my heart to become a doctor since I was a small boy. I shared this with others of which some discouraged me on the basis of the cost, but I told them that God is the owner of all the best universities in the world. Mm. So Angelo right now, my friends, is at medical school. And uh, I gotta tell you that I get chills thinking about Angelo's story because whew, he's gonna graduate next year. Dr. Angelo graduates Next year, little orphan, 
full of enthusiasm, no resources at his disposal, a lot of energy, but had no means. And the Lord saw fit to take care of this guy. And next year, he will be Dr. Angelo. Can I tell you something? Here's the part of this whole story that grips me. Do you think he's gonna take his degree and go off to some big hospital in Nairobi and earn big dollars and live a white collar lifestyle? Do you think that's what Angelo's doing? No. You know what he's doing? He's gonna follow in the example of James Bach and he's going home. Angelo is going back to Vietnam in a cup that's been recently expanded and he's gonna pour out of what he's been given so that he can be a benefit and a blessing for others. My friends, Angelo will be Vietnam's first ever doctor. Process that with me. First ever doctor. And I gotta tell you, I'm so lucky that I've had a front row seat to seeing what the Lord does with generous hands in this little community on the other side of the world when people are willing to share just a little bit of the overflow of their cup, I've been able to see how that's changed lives. And I gotta tell you, as an ambassador from Fellowship Bible Church, when I go to Vietnam, because I know most of you will never set foot over there, the people there are so thankful for you and for how your giving has completely changed their community. Guys, your abundance, your provision, it makes a difference. And I'm here to tell you that so you know it, even though you may never see it with your eyes. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Lord, I found generosity to be contagious. I found generosity to be captivating. And I found generosity to be a path to the life of adventure. What a gift, Lord, that we get to see some of these stories that are being told because of open hands. And Lord, we do know that we are more blessed when we give than when we receive. Jesus, help us to embrace, to live the truth that none of our resources are actually ours. They're simply entrusted to our care so that we can make the world a better place. Would you convict hearts this morning, Lord? Would you steer our hearts, would you steer our minds to be generous in our giving with our resources? Because we don't get to take any of it with us when we depart this world. Lord, may you be glorified through our lives. May we look to the Proverbs this summer for wisdom to live life biblically, even when it makes us uncomfortable. I pray, Lord, you'd see through to the conviction that some of us may be experiencing this morning. May we be moved to act in a way that's in accordance with your will so that we can trust your promise, that you are trustworthy in the area of our finances. In your name we pray, amen.